Ronald Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society playing in Berlin, November of 1984, Berlin Jazz Festival. If you are a regular listener here at WKCR, you might, uh, I hope you've gotten to hear some of the shows that have been happening on recent Mondays. My name is Mitch Goldman. Since we got the very sad news of the passing of Ronald Shannon Jackson in October, we've had a series of deep focus programs around his music. And we're continuing tonight. Our guest, welcome back to the studio, the guitar player on that track. Not to mention our theme song that played before that. Vernon Reed, welcome back to WKCR. Hey, what's going on, Mitch? It's great to be back in the studio. And uh, the tile still looks the same in the ceiling. (laughs) See that? We had it restored. What's what's up with the furry crab thing? (laughs) What is the story with the furry crab thing? (laughs) <laughs> it's a long story that Ben doesn't want to get into now, but his hand gestures let us know. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, it's <laughs> there's so many feelings I have about Ronald Shannon Jackson and what he meant to me. It's hard to, to uh, encapsulate it in one thing. I mean, if anything... You know, I would, I would, the first word that comes to mind is mentor, you know, is that he, I mean, he changed my life. And uh, he was, uh, he, you know, I've had many mentors in my life, you know, like my father and uh, Seku Sundiata, mm-hmm. uh, people who, uh, who changed the direction. Uh, of of myself as a younger man, you know, and uh, a chief among them, and I can name half a dozen, you know, people like Melvin. Uh, not me- well, Melvin changed. Melvin Gibbs changed the course of my life, but that's another story. <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking about Melvin, who cut hair on the block and gave me some of my first guitar lessons, mm. you know. But uh, but chief among people I consider mentors, Ronald Shannon Jackson. I mean, the first time I flew in an airplane, um, the first time I went to Europe was with Ronald. Uh, and, and I experienced things and saw things and heard things 
that I ha- had heard before. An example, the first, that first trip, you know, we're, we're checking in, we were playing the North Sea Jazz Festival in, in, uh, in Holland. And... Oh. <laughs> I know, it's bad. I'll blame it on the interns. They're totally innocent. They have nothing to do with it. Anyway, uh, I'm checking into the hotel, and uh, it's like, who's standing there checking in also but Dizzy Gillespie? Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the great, you know, the greatest concert ever for me, and I was seeing Muddy Waters with Pine Top Perkins and James Cotton. Um, and that and that was standing next to Joseph Jarman from the Art Ensemble of Chicago. So, you know, in so many ways, from the very beginning, um, he just had a tremendous effect on me. And, um, and really changed the way not just music, but the world. You know, because Decoding Society was uh, a band, but it was a way of thinking about things. Ah, uh, yeah. And that was, um, and that was the other part of it. You know, Shannon would always say, "It ain't what you think it is. What you think it is, it's not that." And and that was so... Did you know what he meant when he said that? Yes and no. I mean, on, a, on you know, I, I kind of could guess that, oh, the things that seem to be what they are are not what they are. You were, How old were you when, when you met him? I was 19. Maybe 19. I don't want to. <laughs> nineteen Somewhere or twenty? Yeah, it was nineteen or twenty. Just want to give these guys a an idea of a oh, period of life. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, he. You know, it really all came about because of Melvin Gibbs. Because I want to hear about that. But sure. I'm not letting okay. you off. Okay. Because you just opened the door, and I want to go through that door about. Um, that way of understanding the world that and the relation to the music. Well, Shannon, Shannon was a tail spinner. He told lots of stories. And, not, and he also, he, he would tell stories, but he would also allude to things that he wouldn't exactly spell out. And or maybe, yeah, maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. Give, and, go on. Uh, he told stories about growing up in Texas, about, um, he told stories about what New York was like in the 60s. He had many past lives. He had many, I mean, he had many. So, in a way, in a way, like for like musicians like Melvin, and Zane and myself. Zane Massey, Melvin Gibbs. You know, Henry Scott. 
Bruce Johnson, Reverend Bruce Johnson. Like we were, you know, he we were kind of his pupils, you know. In and a here's way. this forty year old guy with these teen twenty. Yeah, you know, the cats in their early early twenties, their teens, late teens, early twenties, and he would he would look at us and he would know exactly where we were at and what we were. Th- you know, because he he was a very insightful person. So he, he so he was like he could zero in on things you were trying to avoid. And okay, a great example was you know I was a square. You know I met him. I was kind of a square. I was like a music nerd and a guitar nerd, but I was a, really a square. And I amused him because I was such a square. And I had this. Uh, this uh, kind of straight job out in Long Island City. And we rehearsed a lot. And there was a the whole thing, like, I had to be out of rehearsal at a certain time. I had to be out of rehearsal, like, by 2.30 to make my job, right? So it was a thing, you know, like, because we'd get to a certain point, he would be like, I got a brand new tune. I'd be looking at the clock and say, wait a minute, man. <laughs> it's a brand new tune. You know, it's like 2 o'clock. This tune is going to be... It's gonna take an hour and a half to get through this. He would do stuff like that. He would, he would like, yeah, man, when it's not right, read, da 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 da. And then he would like, oh, you, you got to go. Well, go to your little job, right? You know. So, but um, but there was that thing you were saying about it as a that band being a way of understanding the world, and I, to me, I mean, I had my experience as a member of the audience, which was obviously very different from your experience being in that band but that comes through loud and clear to me that uh, and it's in that music hearing the way the instruments respond to each other and we were saying off mic how no other band sounds like this nobody else plays this way and respond to one another in that way and counterparts and and uh, and I'm as a this is a very interesting idea to me that how you express an idea of how you understand the world and how you interact with one another through music and the way that extends through life. Well, you know, Shannon really insisted on you having your own sound. He really insisted on it. And he, he, you know, he would, um, you know, he was, he was, Man, there were times when he would, um, if he heard you sounding, trying to sound like a particular, you know, because he could hear it, you know, if you're trying to, send, trying to do your little Jimi Hendrix move or you're trying to throw your little Coltrane thing, and he would just, he would seize on it. And he would, he would, he could be pretty merciless, you know. Um, but he, but he, what his thing was, is like, why are you wasting your try- time? Like, trying to see, like, a lot of what his philosophy is, why waste your time sounding like somebody else? That that sound is already in the world. You have a sound to make. You have your own sound to make in the world. And you need to be about figuring that out. And this thing was, the sooner you figure that out, the better off you're going to be. Because, you, you know, you're trying to sound like, John McLaughlin or Coltrane or whoever, 
you know, there's gang, there, 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 there's a gang of pe- other people doing that. And you know what I mean? And he was like, well, if you sound like this other person, they, if there are 50 people trying to sound like Coltrane and you're in the, then you're in the Coltrane category and people can judge you against the other 50 people that are trying to sign Coltrane. Not to mention against Coltrane. Yeah, right, right, exactly, which is a, lo- you know, it's, That's it's, a losing it's, battle. It's a losing <laughs> proposition. You know, Shannon, One thing about Shannon is Shannon didn't sound like any, any other drummer. He did. He sounded, he really made his own sound. And that was the thing that struck me the first time I heard him, you know, like when, you know, Melvin Gibbs, you know, we were both Brooklynites and, and he was starting to play with Shannon and he said to me, you know, you got to hear the drummer I've been playing with. And I, and I, and I went and saw him and I was, it was at Ladies Fort or one of these places, loft jazz type scenarios. And I just was, I was captivated. I mean, I was really, I mean, because I'd heard, you know, certainly heard Elvin Jones, heard Max Roach. He didn't sound like them. You know, Jack DeJunette and Tony Williams. He didn't sound like them. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he really sounded like himself. And, and that was, that was just very striking to hear an original sound, a sound that wasn't like other people's sounds. Melvin said something very interesting I never heard him say before when he was here four weeks ago. Hmm. He said that Shannon told him to bring you to rehearsal before he heard you play. He said he hadn't heard you play a note. He's like, that guy, bring him to the next rehearsal. I don't know if he ever told you that. Well, you know, the funny thing is I went to see, um, so I went, so Melvin invited me to go, come see him play with Shannon. And then I saw him and I just was like, man, I was, I mean, the only word I could say was captivated by the music. And then he was also playing with James Blood Omer, you know, and David Murray and Amin Ali at the Public Theater. And then on my own, I went to see them. And that was a, that was kind of mind-expanding or head-collapsing, <laughs> one or the other or both, you know, because I'm also experiencing James Blood Omer. I think it was the first time I heard him. So I'm experiencing James Blood Omer and Ronald Shannon Jackson. And so it was like a whole other galaxy or dimension just kind of opened up. So, I, I mean, I was some... So I went to see, kind of see Ron because I saw him play his music and then seeing him with blood was just like, what is happening, <laughs> you know? And... Uh, and they, of course, had played together Yeah, and they and, and they have a thing. I mean, Shannon and Blood had a... Man, they had a... They made a sound together. And I remember after the show, and I just walking up to uh, Mr. Jackson and saying, man, you play so great. And, you know, I mean, and it was like a kind of awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he looked at me and he said, yeah, I'm Melvin's friend. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, thank you. You know, he was very, you know he's a Texan, very gracious guy. And he also, he would... As you know, when he would play, he would, uh, might take him off. That was right after the set. He would go to that other place that he went and, you know, he'd have to yeah. kind of come back into the world. Well, rhythm, rhythm changes, I, I mean, rhythm changes the way the space feels. I mean, that's something about what rhythm does. I mean, rhythm changes the way reality occurs to you. So... When when you're in the presence of a great percussionist, a great drummer, 
what's happening is because we live in time and time the relativity of time you know what I mean um, well the time literally the feeling of time is is can be changed utterly by the way a drummer plays or, or actually all rhythms that are that are performed all rhythms and the way those rhythms interact with one another you know that's why so much of trance music comes out from rhythm because it, you know rhythm can create an almost hypnotic effect a trance like effect you know um, and little small variations rep- repetitions variations and even when things are com- seemingly without meter they have te- they change how the, re- the reality in that space and that was something that Shannon did constantly like he changed reality you just hopped over the fence and I and I'm totally ready to do that with you he wasn't just changing the perception he was changing the reality yeah he moved he moved uh, and, and I'm and, and I'm not I don't mean that huh, it's funny because that sounds a little lofty or maybe pseudo no but I mean how it actually is occurring your per, actual perception like you know um, when Huxley talks about the door door of perception you know he's talking about um, the use of peyote and mescaline and um, mind expanding substances to to change what perception is but I but I my my own take on that is music itself is that thing you know because we get our brains get an endorphin you know we get a hit an endorphin hit from it and um, it changes how we feel it changes our emotions and when you change emotions you change reality if you if you um, are listening to uh a piece of cello music by Samuel Barber, you know, and you're in a certain mindset. It is changing, you know, your emotional state and reality thereby. And so, Shannon, with with his music, he he mix mastered. I mean, he was. I mean, it's funny because you know the whole idea of mashups is a thing that's been current for for a while now, but he was you know because he he was mixing texas a lot of texas and because he was also a buddhist and was interested in eastern melodies and philosophies he was bringing in eastern ideas and of course jazz and jazz everywhere from bebop to tin pan alley to 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 free forms you know and but, this is the people a lot of too many writers have taken the shorthand of saying, "Oh, well, he was coming off playing with Ornette and Cecil." And well, you but don't really, there's, these are all other layers that. Uh, well, the blues is a central thing, and the blues is a central thing, and you you can't really get what Ornette is doing if you don't get the the fact that he's a Texas bluesman. He's a bluesman from Fort Fort Worth. And, you know, basically he took that and took it sideways. You know, because the blues is always abstract, but we're looking at it so long. We've been hearing it so long that we've stopped hearing it or experiencing it as the abstract thing that it is. Like, you know, for me, you know, Howlin' Wolf is one of the most abstract artists. 
you know, but because he's so such a known supposedly quote unquote known quantity that we we've stopped really engaging in the avant-garde that's inherent in the blues you know like the, the very fact that he's called howling wolf you know you know howling for my darling you know and that's and the, all of that spoonful you know i asked for it and she gave me gasoline and this this is at the heart of what this is what's really animating for me um, at the base of what Ornette has been doing and he's, he's of course taken it very much further and much and 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 done fabulous you know fabulously developed it in other directions but for real with Shannon I mean the blues and 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 also with blood because I've, I've been really honored to have worked with blood and exploring the blues in kind of in a different context but but Shannon, I mean, that was the bedrock. That was the bedrock. And everything else, you know, kind of marches and... Another thing you didn't mention, and there's any number of things you could mention. Well, there's a, mon- there's a bunch of things I want. <laughs> but no, one thing, and I say this because it was the last conversation that I had with him. I think I told you this, that he... Uh, I asked him a question. I was in the hospital with him. And he, he, uh, yeah, he gave me an answer to the question. And then he called me at home that night. He said, come by tomorrow. I, I have another answer for you. And I, I couldn't wait to hear what it was. And the next morning I got up, went over to the hospital. It would turn out to be the last time I would see him. And he said the central thing for him in his music and for all of you, he spoke for all of you guys, he said it was a church. Hmm. And he talked about his mother had been the church pianist and being at her knee at those Wednesday night rehearsals and prayer meetings. And he said that was, and that was kind of surprising to me, very surprising to me. But he said that was where it came from. That was where it came from. Well, it probably also was, it was also there in this, you know, I think there was that and there was a conflict with the world as it is, the world of, desire and the world of the streets you know what I mean yeah. and, you yeah. know what was happening in the church what was happening outside the church I mean that was very much a part of that's the other part of Shannon's music you know Shannon was a cat from the streets well and another Straight part up. of Shannon is that he was eminently capable of contradicting himself at any given moment well that's the beauty I mean, that's part of the beauty you know of it you know, Shannon could be extraordinarily gracious and, and really we laughed all the time and he could also be you know he was also a cat from the 60s and 70s 50s 60s 70s and he went through it and he saw other people go through it and he was also an angry black man like he was a straight up you know what I mean and this is a part a component of discussions about jazz routinely leave out or ignore the social context you know, it's one thing to, to lionize a Billie Holiday, but to put that in the context of a woman who had to enter through the kitchen all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you yeah. put Miles Davis in the context of he, gonna get his, he, can get, he can get his head bashed in any time. In the 50s, Shannon told stories. Shannon did. 
And, you know, and Shannon told stories about Texas that, you know. And you saw some glimmers of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me just let everybody know. You're listening to WKCR. My name is Mitch Goldman. We call this program Deep Focus. Subject of our Deep Focus drummer, Ronald Shannon Jackson. Drummer, composer, band leader, multi-instrumentalist. Rock tour, <laughs> Fashion plate. <laughs> Indeed. Our guest, Vernon Reed, back in the studio. And uh, we've got great music for you and and uh, all kinds of things going on. Maybe we should play a little bit more of Berlin and uh, come back and throw it around a little bit you more. You say Berlin, you sound like a... Berlin? That was, was like with a weirdly... <laughs> bad, fake French, <laughs> Pepe Le Pew accent. Berlin. I say Pepe Le Pew, you know, y'all, y'all, y'all got to be, y'all got to be older than your mom's hand back to understand what I just said. Hmm. I like that town. Actually, Berlin, this, this show was not in Berlin. It was in West Berlin. Well, you know, that was, uh, you know, this was a time in the 80s. Touring then, I mean, this was during, I mean, we still had the superpowers, uh, the Cold War was still on. So we had to go through, you know, Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah, literally. We, yeah. we, we had to go through Checkpoint Charlie. And that was a thing. It was it was a real, you know, going to Berlin. And when you got to Berlin, when you got to West Berlin, it was on and popping. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a it was a it was it was really really a, really something. I mean, the city was defined by the wall. And one time, one time, uh, we were going through the checkpoint, and they had a they had this sculpture. This kind of crazy sculpture, and Shannon looked at it on the east side, and he said, "Oh yeah, that's the tank of freedom." <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, uh, he had he he always had a, one of those. Oh yeah, already. oh yeah. I remember being in Berlin with him. Not I was not not on that trip, obviously, but uh, yeah, he it had a, and he talked about Berlin. He talked about the fact that. Um, I'm remembering this conversation we had in Berlin. He was saying how, because Berlin was like an island of the West in the sea of the East, and how Berlin did not look or feel like any other German city because the Westerners, the West Germans, were deliberately rubbing it in the face of the Easterners, that this is how beautiful and magical and spellbinding and free and loving and open our culture can be. He was very he was very tuned into places and people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Berlin and Paris. Berlin and Paris. Paris um you know Paris I hated Paris the first time I went. I was sick as a dog and the people were crap. And then the next time I went to Paris with Shannon, I was like this is the greatest city in the world. <laughs> I literally was 180 degrees. 180 degrees. I, you know, I, 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 I had both experiences of at despising, hating Paris and despising Parisians. And then the very next time I went, I fell in love with it. You know, and it was yeah, yeah. We 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 traveled to a lot of Murcia, Spain, on the east coast. That was beautiful. And we went to a lot of cool places. Yeah. 
What do you remember this particular show in Berlin and uh, that tour? You know, this was this was um, near the end. This was when he's near the end of when I was playing with Shannon, and this was one of the final. You know, Zane had left. Eric Person was playing. Was um, they started playing with us? Henry had left. Henry was living, I believe, in Berlin, in Germany, not in Berlin, but he was living in Germany. Right. You know, so Henry Scott trumpet. Henry Scott a trump. You know, uh, Melvin Melvin had split. You know, he was starting I and I and and doing. Uh, I think he was still playing with Defunct. It was, it was a crazy time. He might have. He might have stopped. I don't think. He, yeah, I think. No, Defunct. he was out, but he was starting. He, he was doing his own. He was starting to do stuff. Um. Uh, with DK Dyson, it was um, uh, it was a transitional time. It was a transitional time. I remember that. I remember, I remember uh, how interesting Akbar Ali, Akbar Ali and Shannon had a very interesting kind of tête-à-tête. Akbar Ali playing violin. Playing violin, wonderful violinist. Haven't seen him in a while. And and of course Reverend Bruce Johnson, who who I I miss the most. I haven't seen him in I you know it's it's a Bruce you know yeah, I miss him I haven't seen him in a long time he sounds fantastic he's everybody incre- does I mean yeah Bruce Bruce is incredible I mean Bruce and Melvin together was like man out of this world incredible incredible I loved the two of them um, together. They just had an incredible, interesting. They created this, 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 uh, this thing on in the bottom, you know. That was just they managed to. They were not in each other's way. They were inc- literally were complementary. Yeah, that could be a disaster. Two bass no, players. No, 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 no. It was literally they. The way they played together, the sound. Also, their sounds were so different, and. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, um, Bruce was playing fretless. You know, was playing fretless, and as well as play as he played fretted too. But, and um, you know, they just were it was fantastic. That was one of the most fantastic parts of the decoding society was the two was the two of them playing. Well, unfortunately, Melvin's not on this piece we're going to play next. But I'm sure we're going to hear him on some other stuff. We'll hear the two of them together. Yeah. So this is our guest, Vernon Reed's playing guitar. Akbar Ali violin, Eric mm-hmm. Person on the Saxon. reeds, mm-hmm. and uh, Reverend Bruce Johnson on the bass. Mm-hmm. Ronald Shannon Jackson is the is the drummer. It's the Decoding Society in Berlin, November of 1984. This is WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. We call this show Deep Focus, and we are taking a deep focus look and listen to Ronald Shannon Jackson.
we started off this performance with a composition written by the illustrious, fantastic, physical Leslie, entitled Bebop. Bebop. And the second composition we played is entitled Behind Plastic Faces. It featured by Altois, Eric Person. Behind Plastic Faces. From our recording that will be released on Island Records in February, the composition Thieves Market, featuring Akbar Ali, our violinist. Thieves Market, we just played. I'd like to take you on a trip. It's a uh, Sweet of music. Its overall title is A Mental Holiday. A Mental Holiday.
You are in Berlin, Berlin, 1984. Ronald Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society. And you're, this is WKCR FM New York. I'm Mitch Goldman. The show's called Deep Focus. I was carried away. I was listening to those Tom You surely were. <laughs> I, I was. And uh, we call the show Deep Focus. We were putting a deep focus on Ronald Shannon Jackson through the ears and eyes of Vernon Reed, who, you know, Vernon, you've talked a bunch about your experience and the doors that Shannon opened for you in your life. We haven't really talked about what it was that happened on that stage. And listening to that solo that you played in that piece and getting to spend some time with this music recently as I have been, I was around for a lot of that music and I have this point of view about this music that, you know, it's very easy to hear people talk about. I have friends from high school who listen to the same music they loved in high school and they never listen to anything else beyond that and that's fine, they love it. And maybe, you know, part of the experience is that they, uh, it's bringing back the joys of youth and all that. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm idealizing this music and I hadn't spent time with the music so much. In a while, right. And now I listen to the music and you know what? It's still, it's still astonishing what you guys were doing. And there was, I'm thinking about some of the conversations I had with Shannon very recently Mm -hmm. talking about that music and the experience of playing with you Mm -hmm. and um, without saying too much about what he said and getting it wrong I want to hear what you have to say about that. Well Shannon Shannon believed in music as a shamanistic uh, mediumistic experience he he believed in it as a transformational um, transformational process and that um, if the music is played right, that it will transform. It'll, 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 it can transform everyone's experience. I mean, people on stage, and also the audience. And um, you know, he 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 really believed in 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 the you know all the various everything from uh, music. Uh, creating a trance-like experience to music being very tactile, to being to music being very immediate. Um, he believed in the shifts in tone, and um, it was it, you know he he. Uh, I mean, how that music was hammered out. You know, he wrote really all wrote out everything, but he. You know, we had, I mean, and he had these super high skips. He had, his music was really unusual. Um, and, and, you know, it was unusual to, to, to read, you know. Like many times he, he did with all accidentals and that's all technical kind of stuff. It's okay. But he, but he would, but also he would shape the phrasing. Uh, we would shape the phrasing by the playing. And a lot of times the music was, was kind of, were kind of, um, Mapping out the territory, but you know the map is not the territory, mm. right? Mm. So this was something that um, a lot of the, the decoding society music 
happened very organically. But this this was his music, but it was shaped by the players. His music took a different shape with each set. Certainly in the decoding the de- the decoding societies. Um, the various versions of the decoding society that I was in, in that first generation of the band, and then the, the subsequent decoding societies that that featured um, Jack DeSalvo uh, and David Fusinski, and of course the great Jeff Lee Johnson, and you know Ramon Puzer and, and and Reggie Washington, and you know all the great Masuja. I mean, there's a, such a. I mean, there was a parade of amazing. Carrie DeNigris, you know, a parade of remarkable guitarists. With who, wildly different styles. With, with crazily different styles. And yet, and Mark, the, you know. the Deconing Society maintained its integrity Anthony of that Peterson, group sound. you know. The, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Incredible. I mean, like, really uh, a, a lot of incredible um, players that came through. And um, at the same time, his music is very recognizable. Um even through the various shapes and permutations that the various bands, you know, we rehearsed a lot. I mean, we, we I mean, he, he, we, he was a, he was a taskmaster. Because you let's know, let's talk about that. Let's talk about talk to me about work ethic. It was like three, and, and commitment. It was like three, four days a week. I remember that. What was, was a typical? Where did you rehearse? How did you rehearse? We rehearsed. When, okay, so we at one time we we rehearsed at the the, the venue. Um, uh, sa- uh, soundscape, sa- soundscape. Right? We used to rehearse at Soundscape, and then we moved over to the music building. You know, we got a place, had a room. We had a we had a room in the music building, and uh, it was on the eighth floor. And eight oh three. Eight oh three. It was eight oh three, and we were kitty corner um, to T M Stevens' room. T M Stevens, the great bass player, he had a room. And he was like 802 or 801, but he was kitty corner to, to our room. And uh, that's, we lived there. I mean, we... Um, and this music building was uh, 8th Avenue yeah. between 38th and 39th. The 8th Avenue between 38th and 39th. And it's a, it's a storied, uh, it's a storied building. I mean, it's so storied, I'll tell you, that uh, I remember seeing, we used to, I used to see uh, a guy, a uh, tall, good-looking black guy, he had a, a striking blonde girlfriend. He had this little blonde who was hanging out with him all the time. And, you know, she was just chill, blah, blah, blah. And that blonde was Madonna, mm-hmm. you know. And the, the dude was uh, drummer Stephen Bray. And and it was so funny because we used to, you know, we used to, I used to run into them all the time, you know. And later on, you know, when Madonna's first record came, I said, yeah, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at the record, I'm like, Wait a minute! I know this chick. How do I know this chick? From? I know this chick from, and you know she was just hanging out. I think she kind of lived there at one point. And it, it yeah, was she was a, hanging out with him. Every you know she that was she she was this cat's girlfriend. He we, you know in fact at that time you always saw them together, right? So it was stuff like that that was going on. Um, it was a particular point in New York. Music history, you know, we, you know, we we played. Uh, I remember one time we played a couple of times at CBGBs. We also played at the Bottom Line. Um, you know, it was pretty, pretty well. But anyway, our rehearsal thing, man. He, you know, he, 
he would we would be working on tunes and some and some tunes would be you know works in progress that we we work on it for a while yes a deep focus from december of 2013 december 2 a monday night and vernon reed remembering ronald shannon jackson vernon you know he's feels this stuff so profoundly so aware of how things impact him. I think that's part of what makes him a great artist. And uh, he and I have known each other many, many years. I've never known him to speak with such depth and clarity about um, someone as he does in this program about Ronald Chen and Jackson. Very revealing and tons of interesting stuff. Obviously, you're still with us, right? Okay, that was part one. There's two more parts. So uh, they're gonna, you're going to find them in the same place you found this. And if you wandered in from who knows where, come find us on the podcast called Deep Focus. It's on your favorite podcasting app. We are at always the hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. And hey, I'm going to ask you, like us up. You know, it's the one thing we ask. We don't charge money or make you listen to any advertisement or anything. If you appreciate this, then let some folks know. Just, uh, you know, you could put it up on your socials or just tell a few friends or whatever. We really appreciate that. But um, also through your podcasting app, give us five stars or make a little comment or a thumbs up. It's not too much to ask, is it? And um, what that's going to do is help people who haven't heard this show to find out about it. Really makes a tremendous difference. You'd be surprised how few people do it. <laughs> Yours will have an impact. It really will. It really will. I'm going to see it. We have listeners all over the world. I'm so, so pleased and amazed. Over 40 countries, uh, 20,000 listeners, which um, is nothing in this world of podcasts, but um, it's very, very meaningful to me and to the guests. And a lot of the artists we talk about, who it's a, it's a big group effort, and you are part of that group. Okay, I'm going to shut up now. I'm Mitch Goldman. I'll see you over at part two or any of the other, I'm almost ready to say hundreds of other episodes. We're closing in on hundreds. I think this is number 193. All right. See you on the next one.